I think when you're dealing with rural and and remote communities, it's blindingly obvious that a, a one-size-fits-all grid top-down approach doesn't really fit anymore. But again, that's focusing just on the supply side. So an integrated energy approach for me is one that puts the customer first. What does the customer need? Well, the customer doesn't only need electrons, they need something for which the electron is useful. And that was Aaron Leopold from Intergrow. And this is the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. Today, I'm your host, founder and CEO of Power for All, Christina Skirka. I have the good fortune of knowing Aaron for years. Aaron has spent several years working to make the world a better place, including launching the African Mini Grid Developers Association as AMDA's first CEO. He was also a global energy lead at the well-known NGO Practical Action. And of course, he spent a few years working with Power for All as our Deputy Director of Advocacy. We're going to hear more about Aaron's career journey, as well as his current role with Intergrow and his efforts to facilitate faster, more affordable access and productive use for many of those working in the sector. So first of all, let me welcome you, Aaron. Thanks so much, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. You know, and we're talking today about a couple of different topics, but the main focus of this podcast is to dig a bit deeper into the recently commissioned Utilities 2.0 pilot project in Uganda called Twake, which means light in Ugandan. So this project involves a number of partners, including East African Power, Equatorial Power, Power for All, obviously, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Umeme working alongside Intergrow and numerous other partners to test the benefits of integrated energy, which we'll talk about throughout the show. So before we get into those details, why don't you tell me a bit about your role with Intergrow, how long you've been with the company, and why you joined? Thanks, Christina. Yeah, so I am I am the CEO of, of Intergrow, and I, I came into the role just a few months ago after having followed the course of the company's history uh, for about two years working with the co-founders and, and the, the founding team to help them kind of build out their, their business model and their argument and, and support them in, in some of their kind of awareness raising efforts. So the reason I joined is, you know, after running the African Mini Grid Developers Association for a while, which uh, has focused and, and still does focus mostly on, on policy and finance, you know, I recognize that these two issues, which Power for All has also been focused on for, for quite a while, were really two of the three main barriers to, to scaling energy access across the continent. But the third barrier hasn't really been addressed by anyone. And that is the demand side problem. So we're talking about uh, universal energy access all the time. We're talking about megawatts and connections and kilowatt hour price. But what about the customer? What about economics 101, where demand has to equal supply in order to have a viable marketplace for anything, whether you're selling children's toys or cars or electrons, right? And Enero as a company was fascinating to me because, Christina, even as, as you and I were working together at Power for All, when I was with Practical Action, you know, we had talked at that time even about, you know, rural jobs, LLC. We need to have a company whose job it is to, to build out those rural economies alongside the energy company. And no one was really doing it. And along came Energro. And, uh, you know, three years later, I'm, I'm happily leading the charge in this company that I've so long, for so long, uh, wanted to see around and, and no one's really been doing it. So 
we have grand aspirations for the company to really be a major solutions provider to both the on-grid and off-grid uh, energy sector moving forward. But we can talk more about that as the conversation evolves. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And thanks for that overview. Uh, I know you're so well known in the sector, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to follow what you're doing next now with Intergrow. But tell us a little bit more about the company, uh, how it works, uh, what the business model is, the size of it, just anything you can to get our listeners more familiar with this great new piece of work you're leading. Thanks. So Intergrow, what do we do? Well, a lot of people who I know quite well, I, I jokingly tell them, I never thought that I was going to be moving on from AMDA to become a refrigerator salesman, but that is exactly what I have done. So <laughs> Energrow, essentially, we sell household and commercial appliances and tools that people can either use to earn money or save money. And we sell them in partnership with energy companies who are going to new communities that have been recently electrified or to communities that have been electrified for a while and are underperforming. And we sell these appliances and tools on a microfinance basis. So zero of our customers could have afforded the carpentry equipment, the sewing machines, the refrigerators and freezers that we have sold them that are helping them earn money, that are helping the energy companies see more revenues coming from the community. None of them, zero, could have afforded these appliances without our microfinance approach. So we're quite literally driving pickup trucks around as mobile electronics and hardware stores. So, so that's kind of the Enerworld model. And the beauty of it that I, I really love is that it is not rocket science. You know, this is not complicated. We're seeing in our pilot phase exactly what we expected. We see we are giving people things that they are using that they can use to earn an income. We're giving it to them at a price that they can afford for the first time ever. And surprise, surprise, it's working. People are consuming more electricity and they're earning more money. So we're extremely excited about this, not only because of that, but also because it's, it's extremely replicable across new markets and new geographies. Why? Because in every country in Africa, you can buy electrical carpentry equipment and fridges and freezers and sewing machines. You just can't find them in rural communities. And we don't have to reinvent anything. We don't have to create some highly secretive and complicated new business model. We just take microfinance, which we know works. We take income earning appliances, which we know work, and we provide them together for the first time in partnership with energy companies. And so the beauty of Enerville from my perspective is that it is so obvious that you know this should have been happening 10 years ago and it's not. So uh, we're not surprised that it's working so well, but we are very happy that it is. Hmm. That's great, Aaron. And I, I, I have a very clear picture in my mind of you driving around in a truck <laughs> with a lot of electronics in the back. But, you know, I, I agree. Uh, clearly uh, an idea whose time has come and, and probably should have been around earlier. But um, could you talk a little bit about what it's like when you first introduce the opportunity to buy these appliances in villages and communities? You know, is there a big understanding gap? Is there, you know, confusion about the model? Or is it fairly easily understood by people as you're going around to these uh, villages or peri-urban areas? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the face of it, there's immediate understanding. What there isn't immediately there is trust, right? So a lot of these communities are very wary. We've had people who don't really believe that we're going to be providing what we say we're going to provide as, as part of our credit checking process, uh, because these, these communities do not have much in terms of collateral or, or things that we could 
use to sort of collateralize the loan with, we, we do not require anything upfront from people except for a deposit that is about 10% of, of the asset cost normally. And so we, we do some data collection to verify their, their income, are they ours who they say they are? We ask them to get a letter from the local community leader. And sometimes people feel like, oh, this is prying too much into my personal life. It's none of your business to get this information from me. And, and so we do see some, some barriers to entry around lack of familiarity and, and lack of trust. But this comes with anything that's new. Overwhelmingly, however, people just immediately understand it. And they're like, oh, yeah, of course, you don't know me. Of course, you need some information about me. This makes total sense. And they're, they're quite enthusiastic about it. So it's also a little bit different in rural, very rural versus peri-urban or urban areas. You know, people have seen a lot of microfinance come and go in urban and peri-urban areas. In rural areas, still people are a little bit unclear on what it all means and, and how they can really afford something that's so expensive and uh, this kind of thing. But generally, it's been, pretty, it's been a pretty smooth ride so far, I would say. I have to imagine that trust piece is one of the most rewarding parts of your job to build a relationship with new customers and people who maybe are quite new to using energy in general. Can you talk a little bit about how you build that trust and, and what are the most rewarding aspects of your job? Well, let me start with uh, the second point. So the most rewarding thing was actually seeing the results of the First Utilities 2.0 early insights report that was compiled by, by your team at Power for All, the research team at Power for All that's working on, on Utilities 2.0 alongside Energro and the other partners. The average increase in income that we have seen from our initial cohort of a few dozen customers was a 69% increase in income. And this just blew my mind that the average was a nearly doubling of, of income. And the other encouraging statistics is that they've increased their energy consumption by over a third vis-a-vis -vis before when they had that electricity on average. And 50% of those customers want a second loan for an additional productive appliance from us once they've finalized their first one. And as I mentioned before, zero of them could have afforded this service before. So, you know, overnight, we've been able to help people radically increase their income, albeit from a low base, of course. But that they want an additional loan, the potential to increase their income even more, increase energy consumption even more. This is actually, these initial findings are showing us that yes, we can rewrite grid planning economics. We can rewrite low growth expectations if we do this right, and if we do it holistically with the best interests of the community in mind. So our very top priority is serving our customers. And by serving our customers, we're also going to be serving our energy company partners, as this evidence has, has begun to show. And I think that that also leads to the answer to that initial question that you had posed about building trust. So, you know, what we are talking about with our customers is really about what can we do for them? What do you need as a shopkeeper? You know, even if it's not in our initial asset catalog, we will basically try to find anything that these folks need if it will help them earn an income and if it's an electrical appliance. We've already had a couple of customers come back for a second loan and one customer wants a third loan from us already, which is fantastic. He's got two juice machines and he wants an ice cream maker, which is very cool. And one of the most fascinating things is that we've also gotten referrals that you know people are already doing that word of mouth thing that is every salesperson's dream. You know, One recommendation from a friend is worth a thousand advertisements. So we're really, really happy with that progress so far. 
since you raised uh, the pilot, let's go ahead and dig in there for a few minutes. So as I said at the beginning, this podcast is part of our series on integrated energy. This is an idea that lots of people are talking about. But there's yet to be a really standardized, I think, widely understood definition put out there. So I want to use the, you know, having you such an eloquent person on the podcast to kind of set that stage a little bit. So how would you describe integrated energy and and what is the promise that you see for it? For me, integrated energy is simply using all the tools in the toolbox that we have. I mean, if the only tool that you have in your toolbox is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. But you know, when you're trying to install a window, you don't want a hammer, right? And I think when you're dealing with rural and and remote communities, it's blindingly obvious that a a one-size-fits-all grid top-down approach doesn't really fit anymore. But again, that's focusing just on the supply side. So an integrated energy approach for me is one that puts the customer first. What does the customer need? Well, the customer doesn't only need electrons. They need something for which the electron is useful. And they also need good schools and good medical services and good roads and all these other things. It's not just electricity that's the challenge in these in these areas, even if everyone has electricity. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a a really interesting point and a great way to focus that conversation. And that's where where we're going to head next is talking a little bit more about productive use and and the customer themselves. But, you know, the, the pilot, I think one of the great things about working with you and the other partners on this has really been this approach that that realizes there's not one right form of energy for every single person and there's not a right amount either and so having a system that builds in that flexibility that adjusts that is modular and actually right sizes energy for the right customer is absolutely the core at the heart of utilities 2.0 and in terms of the promise for this pilot what do you think is the real potential? So if, if we get to a place where we get this intercoordination and we're able to demonstrate this is not only faster and a less expensive way to get connections, what next? What do you see as the potential application of a pilot like this? That's a, a fascinating question. And for me, a scale up of the project is you know adding two zeros to the existing project and say, let's do this in 100 or 500 communities. And I think only then will we really see something that is truly replicable because we don't want to replicate pilots. We want to replicate success. And in doing that requires uh, a long shot. It requires a moonshot or whatever, whatever you want to call it. It can't be $3 million in three years. It's got to be $300 million over a couple of years and really, you know, putting your foot to the floor and going as fast and as far as you can. Yeah. Well, and and to that point, I think giving a little construction to the discussion about mini grids in this is is really important because, you know, early days when we were first working as a community uh, to approach Umeme and find uh, a way forward where we were actually working together and integrated. So not just integrated in a sort of separate but equal approach. So, you know, mini grids can have that area to develop and the grid will have this, but rather How do we work together, whether it's co-branding, co-construction, co-financing, how do we actually model what real partnership looks like was a core tenet of this experience. And and finding a way, demonstrating models of how that can work is really critical. And, and, And part of that is the business model for success for mini grids as well. And I would love it, Aaron, if you would talk a little bit about the role of making sure that a mini grid is created 
that is connected to some sort of productive use growth approach and how Intergrow and the other appliances, uh, the, the milling equipment, et cetera, that are going to be part of this pilot fit in. And, and maybe talk, just almost put your old AMDA hat back on for a minute and talk about that uh, just to make sure all of our, our listeners are coming along with us on this journey. Yeah. So that's a, a really good question. I think Part of the challenge that media grid companies have faced over the years is uh, that they literally have no service providers, right? So when, you know, five or six years ago in, in Kenya, when the mini grid revolution was getting started here, the mini grid companies were doing tons of government relations work. They were doing engineering work. They were doing community engagement work. They were doing all the construction themselves. Then they're having to do all the financial modeling themselves. They're having to pull investors together because investors didn't know about the mini grid sector. So they're having to teach the investors about the mini grid sector. They're bringing donors out to show them what's needed in terms of donor support. And then when the lights are finally switched on, nobody's consuming very much power because you need all these productive assets that also are not available in, in rural areas. So there's just this litany of, of problems that that the sector faces from regulation and policy to the right type of support not being there to financiers not understanding them at all. And then their customers don't perform the way they want to once everything is finally set up. So what I think partnership is all about is, you know, really understanding your counterparts needs and finding out how you can help fulfill those needs. So Enerbro wants to be a service provider to the energy sector. And one of the service providers to the mini grid sector. You know, we have hardware service providers and software service providers, such as the smart metering companies or AMP or Nissan Road that are helping with energy systems management. But who's helping with the customers? Who's helping on the ground? We don't really have those collaborators except for NGOs and, and GIZ. We're doing good jobs, but there's no self-replicating interest there. There's no, there's no capitalist drive to be in every single community in partnership alongside these mini grid companies until Enerbro came along. And I think that therefore, kind of going back to your question, like what role does the partner play and, and how to be a good partner? It's really understanding the needs of, of your partner and meeting those needs. And, and they have to do the same. And one of the challenging things for Enerbro right now, you know, we've, we've talked about how our, our customers benefit and how the energy companies benefit. But Right now, the energy companies don't have a financial relationship with, with Enerbro. So right now, we are providing a service that is very, very valuable. You know, we're steepening the load growth curve. We're doing, you know, education and training of Minigrid and Umene's clients. And we're providing financial value to these energy companies, but, but we don't have a way to benefit from that financially ourselves. So what we're actually looking at now is how can we monetize this value that we are providing because through our financial modeling, over the course of five years, we've actually found that media grid companies and national utility companies will financially benefit two and a half times more than Enerbro will through our asset financing. So if we're selling a $100 item, we do our microfinancing, it's like 120 bucks. Over five years, that customer will consume more than almost $300 worth of, worth of energy over the lifetime of that asset and other assets that they will purchase from us over that time. So the financial value that we're providing our partners is, is vastly more than the financial value that we're providing to ourselves. So we have to figure out in that partnership rubric, you know, how, how can energy companies be good partners to us? And we're looking at approaching investors and saying, hey, you know, if, if you're investing in mini grid company X or donor, if you're putting X amount of money into rural electrification in this country, 
we can help you de-risk your investment by creating that demand that is not going to be there on day one. And so perhaps the investors might be filling that partnership role by paying us to help increase demand much more quickly. And that will keep the financial burden off of the cash-strapped energy companies, but will provide a fair payment for our services from the perspective of Enigo. So there's, there's perhaps a triangulation of partnerships that is needed to make this really work in the long run. Well, this would not be the Power for All podcast uh, unless we spent a little time not just looking where you're headed, but talking a little bit about where you came from. And, you know, you've had some amazing jobs and you've made an incredible impact in this sector over the years. So let's just talk a little bit about that and see if we can better understand your career journey. If I remember right, at the end of the day, you know, you are definitely about uh, improving the lives of the poor. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about your sort of personal ethos, what it is, uh, the differences that you're looking to make in the world. And yeah, just a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, that's a great question. So I do, you know, in retrospect, have a bit of an interesting career journey. I started with a PhD project ages ago that I never finished. It was much (laughs) too much isolated work in a library for me. But as part of that work, I went to a couple of different like academic training workshops. And at one of those, I was connected to someone who worked at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, which is a Canadian nonprofit that specializes partially in doing uh, reporting and analysis of international environmental negotiations. So for about four years, I attended dozens of climate change and renewable energy negotiations, summits, the UNFCCC meetings. I, I attended loads and loads of them. And we were doing analysis of these meetings. And at one of them, the Egyptian finance minister, uh, this was before the Arab Spring, uh, made a statement that, that was very confusing to me. This was after the commitments of uh, developed nations to put $100, million or $100 billion a year into climate. And this was very, very difficult and, and was probably going to take uh, an incredible amount of political will to realize. And the Egyptian finance minister, which would have been a recipient of, of this, some of this money, he said that we should be patient and that we were maybe not yet ready for this after it had been agreed. And I went up and spoke to him afterwards. And I was like, why would you be saying this? You know, wouldn't you want this money? And he said, Aaron, Egypt is nearing middle income status at that time and is one of the most prepared countries and the most vulnerable countries in terms of climate change. But we could never absorb on an annual basis the amount of money that would need to be allocated to us from that, from that amount of money. And after a couple of years of failure to disperse, everyone would say this isn't working and they would stop. And I was thinking to myself, my goodness, you know, if Egypt isn't ready for this, what about Malawi? What about Botswana? What about Kenya? What about Nigeria? Who is working on building up the workforce capacity, the knowledge, skill set to prepare for a renewable revolution across across Africa. And I realized at that time, almost no one was really the answer. So you were talking about, about Zola and, you know, MCOPA was just getting started at that time. Um, this was like 2009, 2010. There were sort of twinkles in the eyes of the founders. And there were only a couple of organizations really working on energy access and and the term productive use had barely been coined. So I did a bit of, of research to, to figure out who was working on this stuff. And I came across Practical Action. And not long thereafter, they had this advertisement about their global energy lead, which I applied for and, and got. 
and I've been fighting the good fight ever since. Yeah, I hear that. Well, and, and just to that end, though, I have to say that it's just been great to follow your career, be a part of your career, and and watch you grow and evolve. And in so many ways, it just feels like your engagement with Intergrow and Utilities 2.0 is just perfect timing. I mean, you were one of the original thought partners on this whole concept of integrated energy when we first start, started talking about it, you know, six years ago. And it's just been amazing to continue to, to have touch points with you all along this journey and and to see how all these different parts of your career have added up to, to where you are today and the very direct impact you're going to be making on people's lives um, at Intergrow. Um, and just as sort of a parting shot, you know, we find that a lot of Powerful's followers and listeners um, are actually young people who want to get involved in this space. So if you had some career advice to give to uh, you know, a younger person somewhere on the continent, what advice would you give for people who want to break into this sector and, and help you actually make a difference? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think that one of the, the issues is, for, for instance, at Energrow, you know, we don't need some super specialized skill set for a lot of the jobs that we have. Mini grid companies are a bit more engineering focused. Solar home system companies have become, you know, commodified. You know, like there's very, very typical sort of like office and field jobs that you can go in there where you don't need some highly specialized training. In the mini grid sector, I think it's still a bit more specialized. But for Energrow, we need salespeople and marketing people and accounting people and finance people and operations specialists and logistics specialists. So and when I say specialists, it's, it's not like you need 10 years experience and, you know, have, have had, you know, like management background or whatever. So there's a lot of room for people from different backgrounds in the energy sector. And in particular, for the future, like when we're talking about the integrated energy system, you know, that customer first perspective, we're going to need agriculturalists, market specialists, people that are, you know, specialized in a wide variety of different things, behavioral scientists. How can we get people switched over from, you know, traditional biomass cooking to electric cooking, this kind of thing? So I think internships are always a good idea. Get paid internships. Internships should always be paid, in my view. And really, you know, put your neck out there and get out and contact people, not about what you want, but about what value can you provide. And just on a final note for our listeners, you know, it does bear uh, restating that this sector is targeted to be worth 4.5 million jobs in just a handful of years ahead of us. So it is a growth sector and all change makers, salespeople, and inspired entrepreneurs are welcome. Uh, so Aaron, thanks so much for your time today. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, and on our platform for energy access knowledge, known as PEAK. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter, which is a, a great resource for what's happening in the space. And finally, as a reminder, Power for All is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We depend on the generosity of listeners like you. To make a donation, please visit us at powerforall.org donate. Speak to you soon on the next episode of the Power for All podcast.